Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Frank Perez. Frank is a managing director and the head of operational due diligence at McKenna Capital, an OCIO whose roots emanate from Stanford's endowment. Prior to joining McKenna in 2015, Frank was engaged in ODD efforts at Saguenay Strathmore Capital, Morgan Stanley, and Union Bank Parabas, where he focused on private equity, real estate, and hedge fund investments. Frank's background is unique given his risk management experience within several investment banks where he was responsible for conducting due diligence on hedge fund trading counterparties. Frank goes deep on the ins and outs of ODD, the five pillars he follows when assessing a manager, the differences to consider with emerging and immature managers, and common deal breakers. What's an ODD talk without hearing some stories of when things go a little sideways with a particular manager? I think you will learn a thing or two here. As they say, ODD is not where you win the mandate, but you can certainly lose it. Please enjoy my conversation with Frank Perez. Frank, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd love to start and just get some background on how you got into the role at McKenna. First half of my career was mainly in risk management roles. I started out at UBS working on a risk team where we were evaluating lending standards and collateral amounts for a lot of public company senior executive accounts within the firm. And those executives wanted to use their stocks and their shares to either diversify and buy other stocks or buy more of their stock or to access additional capital to buy other things, whether it be a home or something else. And our team was tasked with reviewing those requests and underwriting those companies to come up with a loan-to-value amount. And what was interesting about that role was we looked at everything. Anything that was potentially came across our desk, we were responsible to assess and provide a loan value to that security. And UBS had a huge research team. And I don't know anything about telecom. I don't know anything about biotech. I'm 22, 23 years old. But we have this research team downstairs. So I would call them all the time. And these guys love to talk. 
it was a great experience in terms of understanding what drives revenues at a bank, what's important, why is leverage important, understanding like cash burn at a biotech firm. So not necessarily developing like an expertise in any one single industry, but learning a lot about all these different industries. So that was my first job. And then I moved to BNP Paribas to basically a lending team that we were responsible for providing loans to a lot of the major banks, really supporting their treasury groups. It was getting closer to front office role where our team was supporting basically the relationship people driving these loans. So one year into that, and they basically plucked us out and put us within a risk management framework of BNP Paribas, which is totally different. But about a month or two into that change, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, what do you know about hedge funds? And I said, I know nothing. And they said, you're perfect. (laughs) They moved me over to the hedge fund risk team. They were just dipping their toes into the alternative world and capital markets. Very straightforward, variant swaps, interest rate swaps, very plain vanilla transactions with hedge funds. But it was my introduction to this alternatives world. And what year was that? It was probably 03, 04. We started doing diligence on hedge funds, going to their offices, speaking to them, understanding what's driving the trading activity, leverage, really dipping my toes into what is a hedge fund. So about a year into that role, my boss went to Bank of America. He opened a door for me to join. Spent a couple of years at Bank of America, really ramped up my understanding of capital markets. We were doing a lot of structured products, a lot of credit derivative trading. So really, my exposure levels increased. Did that for a couple of years, made a change, went to Barclays, and Barclays was just a completely different animal. They basically would look at anything, anything in the capital markets. They were like, let's take a look, whether it be leveraged loans, structured products, structured derivatives, anything exotic where most people say, we're not going to even entertain this. Barclays was like, yeah, let's see if we can get something done, which was super exciting for me, especially as I progressed in terms of my knowledge of capital markets products and a lot of the different types of alternative hedge funds that were out there. It happened that my colleague and I were going up to White Plains for a diligence meeting. And he said, a recruiter reached out to me about this ODD position, operational due diligence. I said, what is that? Tell me more. You know, he goes on and explains to me what the role was. And it seemed like the natural progression from what I was doing to getting on more of the buy side from the sell side and really being within the asset management organization that's actually making investments. It's interesting because he said he's not going to call the recruiter back because he didn't think he was ready. I was like, well, I don't think I'm ready, but I'll call him. (laughs) I went through, I think it was about 12 rounds of interviews. I was exhausted. I didn't think I would get it. And they said, you're perfect. And I credit the lady who was running the group at the time. She was like, I don't want people like me because we all think alike. I have a lawyer. I have someone from the fund admin, but you think differently. She's like, you're a risk person. You've been in the capital markets. You've sat on the trading desk. And she brought me in. And that was my 101 to ODD and first position that I had within the operational due diligence function. And are you ever ready 
for a role if it's a growth role? I tell all the young people, look, you'll eventually get there. You just have to be open-minded. You have to have intellectual curiosity. As long as you have intellectual curiosity, you have a good work ethic, you'll probably be okay. You could probably do 90% of the jobs within finance. I don't want you performing surgery, but within the world that we live in, I think for the most part, if you're curious, good work ethic, you can be successful. And how long were you there for? I was there a couple of years, made the change to Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley said, we're really looking to do diligence on our private equity and real estate investments. What's your experience? I have none. And they said, you're perfect. (laughs) So really just tried to leverage what I had learned. And UVP at the time was $55 billion, all in alternatives. We did everything from hedge strategies to equity strategies, fixed income, but it was all on the liquid side. But just going through two years of what I would call boot camp, you really learn how to think about what are the issues that you're trying to identify. And I think once you have a framework, you can apply that to private equity, real estate, venture capital, any asset class within the alternative space. So really my focus at Morgan Stanley was on real estate, private equity, and had some exposure as well to fund of funds. After four years, I didn't want to be at the big bank anymore. I had done that the first half of my career. I wanted to go to a smaller organization, be more on the investment management side. I went to a smaller organization called Saguenay Strathmore. It was these ex-bankers, trust guys who were managing, I think, 2 or $3 billion for some Canadian pensions and families, like really small. We were about 20 people and mostly doing equity strategies and structured credit. I loved it. A year in, the main founder didn't want to do it anymore, and he sold it off to another asset management company, which already had an ODD team, and they didn't need another person. So I reached out to my network, and one of my friends, she came back rather quickly, and she's like, what do you think about California? (laughs) I was like, tell me more. And so I came over and I think where we both had a strong interest was for me at that point in my career, it would have been difficult to go to an asset manager that was doing one thing. I think I would get bored pretty quickly, but McKenna was doing everything, natural resources, venture, private equity, hedge strategies. And that was my experience. So I think we were a perfect match for each other in terms of what they needed and what I needed at the time. What even made it a more ideal situation was at that point in time, they were using a lot of different people internally to do ODD. So it was no one's job. It was everyone's part-time job. So no real focus. In terms of me coming in, it was really a blank canvas. And they said, we need you to build this. For me, that was absolutely fantastic because I can take everything I've learned over the years from really smart and good people and shape it into a program that I think would benefit the organization and drive results for our investment team, and more importantly, really be beneficial for our clients. How do you frame ODD for McKenna? Maybe explain a little bit of your approach to ODD at a high level. I have a risk background, and it's really a risk-based approach. I've been at other organizations where You're taking the same approach and applying it across every single manager. 
It didn't quite work. You would spend a lot of time asking a lot of questions that weren't relevant. And you knew they weren't relevant, but you still had to ask them. So in terms of how I've built out the function and thought about it, it's really about where is the risk? How are we identifying it? The focus of what we're doing is risk identification, risk mitigation, communicating that to the investment team and really partnering with them to either mitigate situations or better understand, is this a risk that we're willing to accept and move forward? Because sometimes the answer is yes, it's okay. And sometimes the answer is we need to do more work. What I've tried to do coming to McKenna is to not be a bottleneck in the process. That's something that's happened before at other roles where ODD was viewed as, oh my gosh, not these guys again. What do they want? I've tried to create a process that no one is scared of, that people see the value and it's providing more information so we can make a better informed investment decision. And and we've seen it. Our investment team comes to me and says, hey, we need you guys involved. We need you to help us better understand this structure or how they're valuing this security, which to me, it's the goal. I didn't want our team to be siloed and we do our work, we hand it in and that's the end of the communication. It needs to be collaborative. That's something that I'm proud of because because I think we've been successful in making it a very collaborative environment between ODD and the investment team. How do you integrate or collaborate with investment teams and legal and other groups? The investment team is the driver, basically, of the business. They're out there sourcing the investments. They're developing their pipeline. They're the ones driving our work. So collaboration with them is essential. If there's no channel of communication, there's just going to be failure right from the beginning. When I joined McKenna, one of my initiatives was to really develop a relationship with each of the portfolio managers within McKenna. I had to make sure they understood what the process looked like. Make sure that I'm not here to tell you, no, you can't do this. I'm here to share information. I'm here to gather information and I'm here to help you. And I think... There was some resistance, a couple of people initially, but overall, I think they were receptive of that. Fast forward to today, we have 100% trust in each other. They have trust in our process. They have trust in what we're doing. They have confidence in terms of what we're doing. There's no one saying, well, we don't really want you to speak to them. We don't have those discussions at McKenna. It's like, all right, we're ready for you guys to go. There's continuous dialogue. Every investment has a teaser stage where it gets presented to an investment committee. Investment committee then decides whether we're going to go or we're not going to go forward. But pre-teaser stage, we're already being looped in. And we're having consistent communication throughout the entire process. What's your input on the ultimate committee decision? All of our work gets presented at the investment committee. And typically how we've dealt with issues is... Two ways. One, we we try to resolve it with the PM. Sometimes we don't agree necessarily that something might be a significant issue. And then that might get escalated to our CIO. I have a monthly call with our CIO. We run through everything we've been doing, things we're seeing in the market, just making sure that he's getting a clear picture in terms of what work we're doing and what we're seeing out there. If he says, yes, this is an issue, do more work, we do more work. So sometimes we create a little friction in the process, but I think that's okay. We're not trying to stop it. We're not trying to 
saying, no, you can't do this. We just sometimes need a little bit more information or we need to better understand something. And when you're making 10, 12 year investments, I think we can wait another week to gather more information. Typically, that's how our work is represented within the investment structure. Yeah, and everybody has a weak spot. So it's not like you're going to come in and say, oh, there's nothing wrong. There means always just an area that could be improved. I'm not telling anyone how to run their business. You choose how to run your business. But I'm going to share with you how the industry is dealing with a particular issue. Whether you want to make changes or not, that's up to you. But then whether we invest or not, that's our decision. And what I've learned over the years is it's easy to say no. It's harder to help someone come to your viewpoint. And there are some managers on our platform. They're absolutely great investments, but operationally, it's not perfect. But I think we can get there. And when you have a good CFO who's willing to work with you, who's willing to scale his controls and add additional resources, it's not going to happen day one, but we set goals over time. And as long as they're making an effort to reach those goals and we're seeing progress, we're seeing enhancements, we're seeing systems integration, automation, we'll continue on the journey with them. So with these relationships that you have that you might characterize as ideal, what does that look like to you? The biggest compliment that I think I can receive is when there's an issue, we're one of their first calls. When they're calling me saying, so when Silicon Valley Bank was having its issues, a good number of our CFOs called me and said, hey, Frank, what are you seeing? What's our alternative? What are other people doing? For me, that is one, we've established a relationship. They have trust. They know I'm not going to tell them, hey, this is what you need to do. They understand that we're going to share information with them and help them as much as possible in terms of providing guidance, providing market data, because at the end of the day, their success is our success. So we're in this together. But I think that to me defines a successful relationship is where the CFO has trust when we've come in or we've shown we want to be partners with you. When we see those calls come in, when there's issues, when they want to better understand or they're thinking about service provider changes, that to me confirms we're doing something right. And how is your team structured today? So it's just two of us. There's another person on my team. And basically, she's the point person for our hedge fund portfolio. So for anything hedge fund related, she's the person to go to. She is the expert. I'm involved as well, but on more of an as-needed basis. The private stuff, I dig into a little bit more on the private equity, the venture capital, everything in between, natural resources, real estate, will sort of split up as necessary. We also have a consultant that we leverage at times. They're fantastic and they do a great job, but it's been difficult for me to call them because it is so important for me in terms of maintaining that relationship with the manager. It's hard for me to give it up when we're potentially having a touch point with them every one to three years. Is it more of a short-term capacity constraint issue? It's when we've got a lot of things going on and there are certain deadlines and we need more bandwidth. That's typically in the past how we've used them. This year, we've used them slightly in a different manner. What we've structured with them is they just lend us an analyst who participates in our meeting. 
we run the meetings, we do all the work, but they write up the report. And we'll write up the risk section for our IC, but the bulk of the work they do. And basically what that's done is it's just, it's opened up so much more time for us where we're not stuck at our desk writing a report for a week. I've tried to think about ways to make sure we're not always on a hamster wheel and running around. What does that report look like? When I was at Morgan Stanley, I saw what people did where we would assess other other organizations' ODD process. And people were putting together these 30, 40-page reports that looked great, but probably no one read. I wanted to make sure we didn't get stuck at our desk writing 30-page reports. So our report, it's changed over time, but it's really about identifying the issues. What is important to McKenna? What is important to our investment committee? What do we think that they need to know? And we cover all the typical controls that you want to review and identify, but we really spend most of our time writing about risk and what are the issues that we've identified? How can we potentially mitigate these issues? How common are these issues? What trends are we seeing within our our entire portfolio? So we try to spend most of that time within the writing section of the report that we put together in terms of risk identification and mitigation. Do you use any other technology around it or is it just writing reports? There's certain providers out there that are trying to provide solutions to the industry. We've seen web scrapers, basically these programs that go onto SEC websites and they'll scrape the data. It seems more like a DDQ repository. So there's some solutions out there, but it's never been what we've needed. And we struggle to find the right thing for us. Right now, a lot of our information sits in Excel and sits in Word documents. One of the projects, it's taking all that data and putting it in a warehouse. And ideally, what I'd like to do is basically have all the financial information from all our funds, financial statements. There's about 80 data points that we extract from it. It's all sitting in probably 100 Excel sheets. We're slowly starting to migrate that to a data warehouse that McKenna uses. There's sometimes people ask me, if, are these expenses high? I don't know. I could say yes or I could say no. I have a sense if they're high or not. But do we have the data to support like whether it's high or not? I can go through the financial statements of peer firms. That takes time. The idea is we should be able to click a button pull that data down for all our hedge funds and see, okay, this is a billion dollar hedge fund. These are funds within its universe. These are funds trading a similar strategy. What are their expenses like? Where's the deviation? We're also doing that with valuations on our private side. So one of our clients asked us, do you guys by any chance have a breakdown of how your managers are valuing their portfolios? And I said, we actually do. Not only do we have it, but do you want early stage? Do you want growth? Do you want late stage venture? How do you want it broken down? So we have all of that data. It's sitting in Excel. I want to be able to put all that data in a warehouse so I can say, we want to take a look at the expenses for a fund that's in year five. What should the expenses for a fund in year five look like? We should have that information as an industry. It's just taking flat data, putting it into a system and being able to manipulate it and extract it. 
it's a labor of love right now. I wish I could focus 100% of my time on it, but it's slowly moving along. It's fascinating. Here we are with ODD's been probably going on in a legitimate fashion for what, 15 years, give or take. And we still have so much information available to us, but it feels like there's just prime opportunity. I mean, there are some SaaS solutions out there, but to try to crystallize and customize for your particular critical issues, there's an opportunity here for someone to step in and actually take some space. I think there is. One of the difficulties is every ODD team does things differently. I think that's been the problem. I'm sure the convergences of the world and the diligence vaults probably developed from some investors saying, hey, this would be a really useful tool for us. We've taken a look and unfortunately, it's not necessarily useful for us because we haven't seen the benefit in terms of sending out DDQs to our managers. Then you have to read them. Well, you have to read them. And what I've noticed, because we've done it in the past, some cut and paste, the best answer possible for the question that you're asking, not necessarily the right answer, but something along the lines that fits there. I've read through some of the answers that we get back. And it's like, wait, this doesn't even make sense. This is not what we're asking. And then it also becomes a document chasing exercise. Who's provided it? Who hasn't? I've been on the bottom of the chain following up on those documents. And I just feel like it's not a great use of time. If I'm going to ask my colleague to do that, do I want her chasing documents or do I want her speaking to managers, speaking to service providers, speaking to peers? I don't know how we get smarter by chasing down DDQs. It feels like you have a situation also where the person actually drafting those documents is not the CFO or the COO, the person you actually want to hear. You might have somebody, maybe a mid-level IR person who's going through and using an RFP-ish like process to drop in as opposed to telling me what they think and what they're doing and you just having an interaction with them. To be honest, I probably don't want the CFO spending his time filling out DDQs. That is not a good use of their time. I'd love to get your take on just your general approach, maybe a case study on how your process works. It starts with the investment team. They're driving every investment. Once we get involved, the first thing we'll do is we'll reach out to the manager and we'll have a document request list. It's pretty extensive. We'll ask for all the legal documents, any risk reports, audited financials. We'll go back, try to extract as much information as possible, compliance manuals, technology documents, policies, procedures. And then we start reading through that. That could take a few days to go through it. We'll start developing a question list, start developing a script for our on-site. We'll commission a background check on the managers, and then we'll go on the on-site meeting. That is where the work happens. That is where we're getting an opportunity to sit down with the CFO, the general counsel, the C-suite of these organizations, and really understand how do they operate their business? And is it always on site, even if the investment team has been there? I would say pre COVID, 99% it was on site. During COVID, obviously, we went full Zoom. Now we've gone back to on sites. We're not at 100%. I think we're probably at 95%. But the expectation is yes, we will be at your office. And to be honest, it's been welcome. 
I think most of our managers were exhausted from Zoom meetings. Our first few meetings back post-COVID, they're actually happy to see us. They were excited. One manager, which we had a very difficult meeting with them, they were ecstatic. And I was like, wow, they're our new best friends. (laughs) And why was it difficult? So this was a manager that was raising $5 billion in a very short time frame. And they were completely oversubscribed. They were spinning out of a big asset management company, all the demand in the world. And they were trying to raise this money in a few months. I think they probably did about 30 to 40 ODD meetings. And we might have been one of their last ones. (laughs) A little fatigue there. (laughs) They were a little annoyed. They answered our questions. It wasn't a great meeting. They were definitely cranky. But I have to say, they are one of our best partners today. If I have a question, I know I can go to the CFO and get his thoughts. We just had a bad meeting, and it happens from time to time. We've developed a good relationship with them. Do you joke about it now? Not with them. I don't think they realize how bad it was, but internally, we do. What? makes up a good on-site visit. And on the backdrop of typically you travel, spend a day getting to where you need to go. They put you in a conference room and then you leave the conference room. Is there anything that you would recommend to people to actually get a better sense other than that on-site interface? So a lot of the work happens in the conference room and a lot of it is us asking questions and the managers responding. But the on-site also gives us an opportunity to see things they necessarily don't want to share with you, whether that's letters from a regulator, provide us a system demo when necessary, access to other people on the team, actually get a view of the office. Are there actually people there? I think the onsite provides you a space to ask for things that a manager necessarily would not share with you, where they might hesitate to send it to you. But if you're there, they should have no issues showing it to you. Given the environment we're in, a lot of people, if I had to guess, they're in the office three days a week. Does that impact your assessment of things? It has not, because we were also in that dynamic at McKenna, and we had the most productive two years we've ever had. I think it's been proven that working at home can work. I don't know about five days a week, but having certain days at home I think we're fairly comfortable with it, but we haven't seen any disruptions from managers who allow their employees one or two days at home. To be honest, from my perspective, just end up working more and being less distracted. In some instances, it could be beneficial. Where we begin to worry is if it's fully remote, I'd have a couple questions. One is, how do the junior people learn? And then how do you stay connected? Because I still think a lot of the interaction happens in the office. Running into someone in the hall or in the break room, a lot of the dialogue and information sharing happens that way. I don't think it naturally happens over Slack. To me, it takes slightly more effort. Could you unpack your operational assessment? What are the component parts that you would say are at the top of the house? We look at it in terms of five pillars. One is the organization. Two is the fund structure. Three would be the fund operations. Four, legal and compliance. 
and five would be technology. On the organizational structure, we're really focused on the ownership structure of the organization. Who owns the investment management company? How broad is that ownership? Are there external third parties that are part of the ownership team? What are those economics like? We've seen, unfortunately, some managers early on who are quite talented investors give up too much of their company to a seed manager, where for 25 or $50 million, and you've given away 30% of your business. So historically, we've had challenges with managers in that situation because part of the game is attracting talent and paying talent. And if 30% of your economics are out the door before you've paid anyone, it becomes very, very challenging. We haven't seen many instances where that type of situation works. So we spend a lot of time understanding the ownership structure of the organization. As I mentioned, compensation is important. So retention schemes, how much of the economics does a founder keep? How broadly is the carry allocated to the team? We generally want to see some broad distribution of the carry allocation or performance fees. We generally don't want the main person taking 90% of the economics. That historically just doesn't work well. So we spend a good amount of time understanding compensation structure, culture. We've started to spend a little time on succession planning. Some of these investments are 10, 15 years. We need to understand what's the path going forward. We spend quite a amount of time on just the human capital element. Who are you hiring? What's the level of turnover? Who's left? Why? How well resourced are your teams? It's interesting because when I was at Morgan Stanley, we were investing in these mega funds, the Carlisles, the Baines of the world, these really big funds. I would describe them as operationally resilient. No one person is going to change the dynamics of the operational infrastructure of the organization. There's departments within departments. So pretty big teams, well-resourced, well-organized. They have systems, they have automation. A lot of what we invest in is small cap. We do a lot of middle market buyout, a lot of smaller venture teams where there might be one or two back office people. In terms of what we're assessing and what we're doing, assessing their capabilities becomes even more important because they're not only the CFO, they're also the GC, they're also the CCO, they're also the technology person, they're also the office manager, the HR, the person who orders the snacks. They're doing it all. So we really need to understand how that's happening, what controls are in place, and what's the path forward. I think it, it makes sense for a fund one to have a CFO in place with a fund administrator supporting them. But after you surpass fund one, you're raising capital for fund two. Now you're moving from potentially 15 portfolio companies to 30. And soon it'll be 45 to 60. All that data from those companies is going to be, have to be aggregated by someone. It's typically the CFO. We find it, it becomes very challenging for one person to maintain that role. So human capital is a place where we spend a lot of time. On the fund structure, we're looking at where are these vehicles? How are they structured? Working with our tax group in terms of which fund would we want to be placed in? Are there any tax drags that we need to consider? And we're not tax experts, but we could ask the initial questions. 
to help get our tax team off the ground and better think about where we want to be, whether we want to be onshore, offshore, what jurisdiction best fits RLP base. So we spend time on the structure. We outsource our outside counsel who does a full legal review, all the legal documents, and they outline the terms for us. But some of this stuff is not written in English. So lawyers understand lawyers, but sometimes we need to sit down with the CFO and just tell me what this means. How would you use this? 90% of the time, they'll say, we would never do this. The lawyers just wanted to include this. But we have to understand, well, just in case if you ever did, walk me through the mechanics. How does this work? So we spend a good amount of time understanding the terms, the mechanics, and some of the nuances involved. We'll spend time on governance, understanding if there's an independent governance structure. On the private side, it's typically through the limited partner advisory boards. On the hedge fund side, you typically have two or three independent Cayman board of directors. We spend a little time understanding those relationships, what they're doing, what is their actual governance rights, the frequency of meetings, the amount of information that's provided, and their role in the structure. And then we'll, we'll spend time on better understanding leverage, How's leverage obtained? How is leverage used? The hedge fund side, it's primarily through derivatives, through their prime brokers. We'll better understand whether they have margin locks with their prime brokers, and then the use of derivatives, which it's scaled down completely since my days at Bank of America and Barclays. I have to say the industry has become less adventurous in the derivatives world. Maybe they learned their lesson after 08 and the whole Lehman debacle, but yeah, we used to see some interesting trades. I mean, there were some funds that just completely had no idea what they were getting themselves into. <laughs> I'll tell you one. They were doing these first-to-default basket swaps where they put together a basket of five names. If one defaults, they lose. They were selling protection on the CDS, so basically collecting premium and providing insurance. So as long as there were no defaults, everything was fine. As credit spread started to blow out, those trades went really against them. And every day we were calling for variation margin, calling the next day, the spreads kept blowing out. They were upset. They were like, we don't believe your marks. They got fairly heated. And at the end of the day, we ended up holding about 80 to 85% of that fund's NAV as collateral for these trades. Wow. We received their risk reports as part of our monitoring process. An LP would never know from looking at those risk reports what was going on underneath the surface. Like they completely put themselves in a product they did not understand. That didn't go well for them. One thing that we've started to look at is just in the audited financials, how much is due to the brokers and questioning the managers. Why is this number so high? That is just one day. So a lot of times it's just, oh, we had a lot of trading activity. So we have a lot of unsettled trades that day. That's why it's high. It's almost impossible to see because we just don't have that transparency. There was one manager recently we just diligenced where we were looking at the financials. Their gross was higher than they represented to our investment team. And they said, well, where are you guys getting your numbers? I said, well, we're getting them from you. We're getting them from your audited financial statements. A little friction is okay. And this is an instance where we had to say, Let's pause. We need to understand why their numbers are different from ours. 
in this instance, we ended up on a call with their chief risk officer. She went through her numbers. Her numbers on the girl's side matched ours. There was some information that they had that we don't have because we can't see it through the audited financials where their net was much smaller than what we were representing. And it all made sense. So we were able to clear that up. But I think instances like that are important where sometimes we need to stop, pause, think about what we're doing. Why is this number different? Have them explain it to us. That tends to happen from time to time. But for me, leverage is you need to understand it. You need to understand how much is being used and where is it being sourced. And what other pillars are there? You mentioned compliance, tech. We spend time assessing the operations team, understanding segregation of duties, who's involved. Do you utilize outside consultants? Do you have part-time employees? Where do these employees sit? Really understanding the dynamics of who's in charge of what. We spend quite a bit of time on trade flow process, who can trade, what systems are in place, what's the reconciliation frequency, who's involved, really understanding how that process flows from moving from front office idea to execution to confirmation to then reporting. And what we really want to see there is the less hands touching those trades, the better. As much of a straight through process as possible, I think for the most part, the industry has done a fantastic job here because there's really good technology out there. I think the CFO community has embraced these tools. And for me, it's made their lives a lot easier. There's less of that paper ticket in the drawer type thing. And there's a trade no one knew about. It's very much cleaned up a lot of the issues I think the industry had 10, 15 years ago. So we spent a fair bit amount of time understanding the middle office process, who's either settling the trades, who's calling for collateral, how often are you calling for collateral, making sure that our managers have bilateral agreements. If their trades are in the money, they can call collateral and minimize their counterparty risk as well. We spend time, obviously, on valuation. Hedge fund side, fairly straightforward. On the private equity side, we tend to spend a lot of time understanding what the manager is doing and how they're doing it. They always tell us it's an art, not a science. A good example, we have three managers who are invested in the same convertible bond. One manager says, it's just a bond. We're holding it at par. The other manager says, well, we're not putting any equity value on the option portion of the convertible. We're going to look at it as a bond and interest rates have gone up So the the value of the bond has gone down. So they're marking it below par. Then we have our third manager who says, well, we think there's value in the option. And we're valuing the bond as well. And they're holding it above par. So we have the same security, exactly the same security. Someone's holding it above par. Someone's holding it at par. Someone's holding it below par. And the crazy thing is none of them are wrong. They're all valid approaches. But this is where we tend to spend a lot of time understanding what's the approach, who are the people involved, show me the supporting information for your valuations. How did you arrive at this price? We spend a ton of time on the valuation, the people, assessing the actual values, and then benchmarking our manager's values for certain positions to other managers. 
So you're holding it at cost. Someone else is holding it above par. Help me understand how you arrived at that price. Is this when you loop in the person who's doing the manager coverage on the investment side? They're typically hand in hand with us on this process because we need to understand how evaluations work. It is in their vested interest to understand. And they do a ton of work on their side and we do as well. And then we'll team up and sit down with the manager and have them walk us through this. It's not wrong. I don't think people are trying to game the system or inflate their valuations. I think valuing private securities is hard. It's really hard. A lot of it depends on how much information you have. And some managers are able to get more information from their portfolio companies, especially the ones that have control positions, versus other managers who might have a minority position. We see it a lot more in venture. Because in venture, it becomes, if you've only done the A round, you probably don't have information rights going forward. It almost becomes a black box. The only data point that you have is the last financing round. And how much credence do you give to the other service providers that are involved, like audit, admin? I think everything is a data point. So there is some comfort that the auditor's valuation team have looked at the position and they said, it's okay. They might have engaged Duffin Phelps or Hulan Loki or Sterling or one of the big valuation companies. And those companies typically tell you whether the value that you have is reasonable. They're not saying it's right. They're not saying it's wrong. They're just saying it looks reasonable. But at the end of the day, it doesn't replace the work that I think we need to do. I've heard this in the past. Oh, their auditor, they have a clean audit opinion. Why do you guys have to go do work there? It's like, well, it's a data point. Spend time on valuation. We spend time on accounting, how reports are generated, who's generating it, whether there's a fund administrator involved or not, what's their role. We tend to dig in a little bit more on the hedge fund side because on the hedge fund side, there's cash coming in, cash coming out. There's subscriptions, redemptions, there's movement of capital. Where on the private side, there's a good independent check on the accounting portion, but there's no capital coming in or out to LPs. So there's less of a risk there. And then on the accounting side, we spend quite a bit of time just on cash controls understanding how cash comes in, how cash goes out, who are the authorized approvers, what banks are being used, if there's a fund admin, what's their role in that process, really wanting to ensure that there's appropriate controls and not one individual can input a wire instructions and approve it. There has to be appropriate controls there. And something else we've spent quite a bit of time on is better understanding the manager's controls in terms of our wire instructions change. What are their controls to ensure that those changes are actually coming from us? Because we've received fake capital calls from managers where their CFO was hacked and the person on the other end sent us a capital call on their letterhead, exactly the same format, exactly the same wording, except the bank account um, was different. And our internal controls require any changes in any wire instructions, there needs to be a verbal communication with someone. So that is something we take seriously. That is something we definitely diligence with our managers to make sure that they have the appropriate controls because on the cyber side, there's a lot of risk. And then on the compliance side, 
It's hard at the smaller organizations where you're not going to have a dedicated compliance officer, but there should be a compliance program. There should be a compliance manual. There should be controls. You should have a compliance consultant assisting you with regulatory filings, with maintaining the compliance program, testing the program, and providing an annual, either a mock audit or a risk assessment of that program. And just ensuring the CFOs are running around doing a thousand things. So maybe sometimes compliance isn't on top of their mind, but we want to ensure that there's someone there who's on top of what regulatory changes are coming. How are other people making changes to their platforms? How are other people incorporating those changes to their process and really helping the internal team manage the compliance process? One thing where we do get concerned is when there's just a lack of focus here, where it's just completely outsourced and there's a material disengagement from the organization, where it's just like, yeah, we have this and it's doing what it should do. But you look at their compliance manual, there's no way you guys are doing this. You guys just pull this off the shelf and put your name on it. We don't want to see that. That's where funds get in trouble with regulators. It's when you have the 300-page compliance manual and you're four people? Yeah. (laughs) Trading, uh, doing long-only equity. This is where we try to spend some time helping our managers better understand. This is what your peers are doing. You have a consultant. This is how you can leverage them. And maybe you don't have the right one. You either have the wrong team, maybe they're too big and you're just not that important of a client for them. This is definitely an area where we've been able to add value and help managers identify people we've seen that we've come across that we're like, wow, they're really good. This is a really good solution. And we try to make those introductions when possible. One place where we've seen benefit in terms of allocating more of our time during our meeting time on the compliance front is with healthcare investments. And this is because healthcare managers are heavy users of these expert networks, and they tend to go beyond those expert networks. They put the appropriate controls and procedures in place, but sometimes they go outside of these networks where there's less controls. And when you say control, you're referencing more MNPI information? Correct. More disclosures, whether the expert has been at a public company How long ago was he at that public company? Is that public company a target, a competitor? The expert networks identify that for the managers and flag it. And the CCO should flag that as well. But we've seen just because of the heavy use that healthcare is definitely a strategy where there's more risk there. MNPI risk is real. We've had a couple of managers trip up on that. And then we had one CCO that was just completely disengaged. We asked him and he's like, well, we're not really focused on this. This isn't that important for us. I was like, what am I missing? You guys invest in healthcare. You guys speak to experts. It seems like a hundred times a month. And so is the outer ring around that? What is that group or person beyond the expert network? I guess there could be someone at a university, someone at a governmental agency. And that's where There might be certain issues when you're reaching out to someone at a governmental agency who might have information on a particular regulation, something that's being changed. But that's definitely like a gray line where someone in compliance should be like, hey, pause. We need to understand what do we have? Let's speak to outside counsel. Do we need to restrict ourselves? And, and, you know, in this case, this GC just wasn't focused on this. And for us, it was like, this is the risk. 
everything else is fine. The accounting is fine, but we can't move forward if the biggest risk for this organization is not necessarily a concern for the CCO. And in that instance, we didn't move forward. We also look at regulatory contact. If we're on site, we'll ask to see the deficiency letters from the SEC or other local regulators where they might have had a regulatory exam. Because the SEC has visited your office, because you've got a clean letter, does not mean we're good to go. It is a data point. It is important. It is good. But it does not mean ODD does not need to get involved because the SEC said it was okay. I'll be honest. There are managers that I have said, when the SEC goes in there, there's going to be problems. And they've gotten clean opinions. I'm like, how did that happen? (laughs) What am I missing? There was one manager, they were getting ready to launch Fund 3. And the SEC recommended the manager to their enforcement division. And they disclosed this to us. And we're like, wait, that's not good. What's this about? And they didn't know. They said it has something to do with valuations. The SEC has not disclosed to us the issue that they've identified. We're getting ready to write them a check. And we've had to pause. We paused. I flew out and met with the manager, their CFO, their entire back office team, their investment team. And I had them walk me through each portfolio company, all the work on the valuations and how they valued each one. And we went through each number and everything made sense. There was nothing that I could identify. I was like, why are you doing it this way? We then contacted their valuation agent. We spoke to them. Everything was fine. We get full transparency. We don't have any issues with any of their valuations. We find them all to be reasonable. We speak to their outside counsel. Outside counsel says, we have no idea what the SEC is looking at. So it puts the LP in a bad situation where we have no information. All we know is that the manager has been recommended to the enforcement division. And what it turned out, this manager, when they were marketing their first fund, apparently included some vehicles where they were one of the sponsors, but not the sponsor. And the SEC had issues in terms of how they represented those investments as part of their track record. This was not news to us. We understood their track record. We were happy with what they were doing. We had already invested with them and with two prior funds, but they couldn't raise money for their third fund. It just completely stalled the entire fundraise. All as a result of what happened when they were spinning out. That's why, for me, it's an important data point, but the regulators are not investors in these funds. They don't have clients in these funds. I think they do an important job. I think they do a hard job, but there's not a perfect correlation between our concerns and theirs. And that's where sometimes things get misaligned. And sometimes you wonder, oh, how are they helping us? Because ultimately they're supposed to be helping the LP community. And I think in some cases they have, they've improved disclosures. They've they've helped bring to light certain practices in terms of how certain expenses are being allocated. But at the end of the day, like sometimes we just struggle to see. We don't understand how that helped us. And with all the stuff that you cover and look at, you must run into things that go sideways. Are there any areas that you think things tend to go wrong more often? 
typically if there's a lack of disclosure or if there's an unwillingness to change behavior. The lack of disclosure is easy. That's an easy conversation with our CIO. They're not disclosing anything and it's done. We're likely not moving forward. Is that just how they engage with you? Yeah, or just the on-site. I've had this situation, not at McKenna, this was in a prior role, but we went to a diligence meeting. My first 10 questions, the CFO said, we don't disclose that. (laughs) And I said, well, thanks for having us. And I left. I'm not going to waste your time. I don't want my time wasted. It was funny because then they came back to us and they begged us to come back. They're like, there was a misunderstanding. We're going to be open. And it was like, well, that was your opportunity. So I think transparency is important. I'll give you another example. There was a background check issue at a prior firm that we had where the director of operations misrepresented his education. On the website, it said he graduated from X university. We thought he was important enough in the process. We typically don't run directors of operation. We typically stop at the CFO level. We're like, this guy's important. Let's run him. And our vendor couldn't verify his education. We go back to the manager. And this instance, I was, I was dealing with the CEO of the company. It was a real estate company. And he was a point person in our diligence process. And he's like, yeah, we'll look into it. We had asked the director of operations to sign a release form. The day after we asked for the information, he went to his CEO and said, look, they just asked for this. I want you guys to know. I never really graduated from this place. I kind of never said I did, but I never said I didn't. They represented on their website that he did, and he knew they did. He never raised his hand and said, hey, I actually didn't graduate from this university. So we sent out the background check. Two weeks have gone by before we've called the CEO to verify, just tell him, hey, look, can you clear this up for us? And he's like, yeah, we'll look into it. He already has the information. He calls us back two days later and he's like, hey, this is the situation. And I was like, wait, when did you know? The issue then became less so of the director of operations misrepresenting himself to the CEO not disclosing the information to us. And in this instance, we went back to our IC and we went, look, I think the director of operations made a mistake. He seems like an honorable person. He's very important to the process. We really liked him. He, he's smart. He's sharp. He's really good. However, if the CEO withheld that and only brought that information forward because we told them we had discovered that, can we confidently say that if there is an issue, he will disclose it to us? And that became the problem. In that instance, we did not move forward. But that's where transparency becomes so imperative, especially in this business, because a lot of it is trust. You're building trust on both sides. And once that trust is lost, there's no reason to continue. Is there a situation that you had something that was analogous that actually turned out to be a different result because of transparency? There was this one case where one of the CEOs at one of the companies, he had a common name. Background checks come back. They verify that it's him. And the issue is he was arrested for stealing FedEx packages from the neighborhood. Why is the CEO of a very successful venture capital firm stealing FedEx packages in his neighborhood? Which, mind you, he lived in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods here in the Bay Area. Made no sense, but 
we called our background check company because we've got to verify. They said, no, we are 100% sure. They're like, it's his same date of birth. It's his same social security number. That is him. So we have no choice. We've got to ask him. It was so awkward. I think I spent 10 minutes just beating around the bush. And I think my colleague kicked me and was like, just spit it out. <laughs> and I was like, hey, are you stealing FedEx packages? <laughs> and he laughs. He's like, I am not. They checked the wrong person at the courthouse. He's like, it's supposed to be the guy above me with the same name. And I've been trying to deal with this for a couple of years now. I'm like, all right, so you're not stealing packages. He's like, I am not stealing packages. That ended up being fine. In a prior life, when we ran a background check, there was a CFO who stood trial for bank fraud. And this was a very structured deal that we were doing. It was pre-sold, no way of getting out of it. We have a CFO who's now leading this organization and will be controlling the money that we send in. So we had to ask her and her reaction was, oh my gosh, that was so long ago. I was like, was this you? She's like, yeah, it was me. She went on to explain this was in the 80s and they used to share passwords to systems and she worked at some investment firm and someone used her password to go on the system and start routing money to a separate bank account. And we read the court documents. There were no charges brought to her, but she did stand trial. So what do we do? We can't let her touch the money because just in case something goes wrong, how would we defend having this information? <laughs> and then she goes ahead and, and potentially does something. Very low risk, but we would look very bad. So we had to unfortunately negotiate with this manager to have the CFO removed from all control functions regarding this investment. She wasn't happy about it. They weren't happy about it. But we insisted because while it was a remote chance that she would go on and do something nefarious and actually commit a fraud, if she ever did, we would look like idiots. We just couldn't take that risk. That was just an instance of where something came up. We had to restructure around it to be able to do the deal. But we've learned now, we ask before we run the background checks, is there something we should know? Following up in terms of other challenges that we have, managers just don't want to change behaviors. There was a manager who did not conduct background checks on any of his investments. The reasoning was, he's like, I know them. It was in a venture structure. He was just like, look, I know them all. He's like, not going to find anything. No matter how much we insisted, he absolutely refused. And we couldn't move forward. It, it was something so simple that could have been resolved. And he dug in and just said, I'm not doing this. There was another instance where there was a fund where the PM sat on, on the boards of some of their public companies and were receiving actual board fees. And we told them, well, you're kind of in that position because of our capital. So you shouldn't necessarily be benefiting from that. That should offset against the fund. And they refused to do it. They said, this is how we've operated. We've always done it this way. Nobody's ever said anything about this. We don't see anything wrong. We just couldn't move forward. It's like, well, it doesn't seem like you're going to be a good partner, which is fine. I think, as I said, and the people can run their business any way they want. 
it doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to be in a position to invest with you. Something you mentioned earlier in terms of our interaction with the investment team, our team is the bridge between legal and ops and the manager. We are the ones with the relationship. So we are the ones typically who get involved in helping to point the teams in the right direction, helping explain issues to our managers, helping drive some information flow that we might need or we might want. So we tend to act as the bridge for them to access our managers. A lot of our interaction with them is just sharing industry data. What are firms doing? How are firms handling a specific issue? What technology solutions are you guys seeing out there? So we also provide an internal consulting function for our team and helping them better understand what's going on in the market. It's really a strong and helpful relationship in terms of our interaction with our legal compliance and ops team and helping serve as the bridge either to the industry or to the managers. Along the way, even as a consultant, my experience in an advisory capacity about where things go, you also learn things along the way. Yeah. And that's, at least for me, why I love what I do. This industry is changing. It might have changed as we've been speaking, (laughs) (laughs) but it's always adapting and it's very dynamic. So there's nothing stale about the alternatives business. Four years ago, we started looking at crypto, completely different asset class, different diligence process that we had to conduct. We had to get up to speed in terms of the industry, understand who are the players, how do things work. When I don't feel like I have an expertise in something, I always feel like I need to dumb it down and just go back to first principles. We're going to give you money. Walk me through what happens next. And walk me through the whole process until that money comes back to our bank account, just in its simplest form. And then we'll dig in where we need to. But that's what excites me is that we're always learning. There's always something new. It's a very simplistic way of how do I get my arms around something this novel? Yeah, it took a long time. I have to give a lot of credit to our first manager. They were super patient with me because... I think the first meeting, we probably spent five hours with them. And I was just like, treat me like you're speaking to your child. What is this? How should I be thinking about this? These are my concerns. Help me better understand the industry. I could go back and look at my report that I wrote for that manager and the concerns that we had. And two years later, they were completely invalid. But then if I go and look at it today, they're all back on the table. They're all valid again. <laughs> what about on re-up? So you've already done your initial and then on the follow-ups, is it the same process? It's a similar process. We'll touch on the five pillars again. However, at this point we have more information. The tricky part with private equity and venture, especially when you're going into fund one, there's nothing to look at. There's no investment history. What we've done is for most startups, we might go back a year and a half later. And once they're up and running, okay, show me what you've put in place. How are you doing things? What's the valuation looking like? Let's talk to the team. Who's here? And then when we are up for a re-up cycle, we're going into fund two or the next fund. We're really tackling those five pillars. We want to understand what changes have occurred, changes to the structure. And then we'll, we'll actually spend more time on the operational policies and procedures because now you have assets 
You've been pricing them. You've been providing statements. Walk us through that process. What's worked? What hasn't worked? What have you had to change? So a lot of this stuff still applies. Like a lot of the pillars still apply. So we shouldn't spend as much time as the initial. We tend to spend a good amount of time with them because now there's actually something to look at. On reups, we always go back. We do them on site. And it's usually more interesting meeting than, than the initial. What would you recommend if you're a manager and your current ODD process is maybe you have a CFO, general counsel, operating person? At what point do you feel like you need to then create your own ODD team? I'm a little biased. I think you should have one right off the bat, or you should have someone. After you get past 20 investments, I think it becomes hard for the CFO and the general counsel to allocate enough time to do it properly. CFOs and GCs and CCOs, they're so busy. I just don't know how much time they could allocate once it gets above that number. Any advice you have for someone trying to get into the role of ODD? The more diverse of a financial background you have, the more things you've done, the more things you've seen, the more products you've been engaged with, either directly or indirectly, it makes you, one, more marketable, and two, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to succeed if you do enter the role. I've never taken an accounting class, never been an accountant. I respect what they do, but I've been doing long enough that I understand what needs to be in place. And I had good mentors in the beginning that were very technically sharp. But I think it's hard if you've never touched any part of the financial services space to sort of come in cold and, and learn. Because it's not necessarily what they're doing, but understanding what's missing or hearing a story and being like, wait, let's back up a little. Let's unpack that. If you can develop that by coming out of college and going into ODD or doing an ODD function, I feel for myself, just having that risk management capital markets background was so helpful. So we like to close with two questions. The first question I have is what advice would you give to an emerging manager from an operations perspective? When you're making that transition and starting to attract institutional capital, you have to be open to change and you have to be able to listen. And I think what we try to give most of our emerging managers is we're giving them free consulting advice. Look, we're not going to tell you to hire 20 people and put all these systems in place, but we are going to try to help guide you to build a successful business. I think emerging managers have to be open to change, open to thinking about how they can scale their business. And there might be a cost to that. I think the ones that have been successful have been the ones that, number one, really want to be good partners, take our recommendations and really start implementing some of those changes, which at the end, make them more attractive to other institutional investors. So I think being open to change, listening to your LPs, and addressing some of the issues that they might have is really the blueprint that we've seen to help take you from being a $100 million manager to having over a billion dollars. The last question I have is, what is the one industry resource that you most commonly refer to people? An oldie but a goodie is just when genius fails. It's a clear indication in terms of how a lot of smart people can get leverage wrong. It's good, I think, for new people in the industry or people coming out of college We've been in this crazy bull market for 12, 13 years. I think it's a good indication of how fast things can go wrong. 
and why risk management is so important. Because I think there were like four or five billion dollars and then suddenly position goes against them and they were done. That's one of the books. I've read it a couple of times. I always tell our analysts that's one they should get. Well, Frank, thanks for your time. Wide ranging, a lot of takeaways for managers and appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.